Good morning, Harvest Church. It's a delight to be here with people actually in the room, because last time I was here I was speaking to a camera, and I don't know what any of you actually looked like. My, uh, my wife joins me this morning, and my kids are at home. They promised they would watch the service this morning, and I said I made them a deal. If you watch the service this morning, I'll mention your names. So Annalisa, Alethea, Benjamin, Nathan, Noel, Lily, Catherine, and Elizabeth, I love you. I don't know if you've heard the story behind the, uh, the famous hymn, It Is Well. The hymn, of course, was written by Horatius Spafford. He was a sex, successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago, lovely family, his wife Anna, five children, but they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their, their son died from pneumonia in 1871. That same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire, yet God's mercy and kindness allowed the business to continue. But on November 21, 1873, a ship sent sail for France to cross the Atlantic. 313 passengers were on board. Mrs. Spafford was there with her four daughters. Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, but he came into some business difficulties and he had to stay back. He planned to travel a bit later. About four days into the journey, uh, the ship, though, collided with this powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship. And suddenly all those who were on board were in grave danger. Anna hurried to, 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 to be with the four daughters, but unfortunately the, the four daughters drowned. Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna had lost all five of their children, their son by pneumonia and their four daughters through a tragic accident at sea. A sailor was rowing a small boat, though, and he spotted a woman on a piece of wreckage, and it was Anna. Anna was still alive. So Horatio decided to finish the journey and go be with his wife, and when he got to a point in the Atlantic, some of the sailors came to him and said, this is about the place where your daughters drowned. And this is what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul. Tremendous pain and suffering. This morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 1. And as we've said throughout the service this morning, we're going to be talking about the redemptive value of suffering. What a tremendous comment to even title a sermon. The redemptive value of suffering. How can such pain and loss be redemptive? I think James is going to teach us.
James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also the rich man so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We'll stop at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of faith, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your blessing as we look to your word. We pray that Jesus would be clear and real to us, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, verse 2, let's get right into it. Verse 2 says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, Count it all joy if you meet trials of various kinds. It says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And the point here, of course, is that trials and suffering are simply inevitable. It's part of the, the, the world and life that we experience on this side of Genesis 2. Trials are inevitable. Jesus even said in John 16:33, in this world you will have troubles. He just flat out says it. In this world you will have troubles. You remember what Peter says, in his letter, 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. A trial is a pain, it's a grief, it's a loss, it's a heartache, and they will come upon us. And some of us are in the midst of them right now. Many of us are in the midst of it just in light of this global pandemic. But all the residual effects of that, financial loss, family loss, relational loss, it's a trial. And the problem is that we're not really that well prepared as a culture for suffering. We might actually be the most <laughs> unprepared culture in the history of the world to face suffering. Everything around us exists to alleviate suffering, right? I mean, we, we live in the most litigious society of the world, by way of example, meaning that we sue everybody for everything. We're just constantly trying to alleviate suffering. 
by way of example again, I don't know if you know what the DSM-5 is, but it's, and I don't necessarily disparage it, but it continues to grow in diagnosing continual psychological and psychiatric disorders. It just continues to grow. They can just release a new one every few years, and the list of possible diagnoses continues to grow. I don't mean to disparage or even undermine anyone's pain or otherwise, but there's always another reason for our pain and suffering. We're trying to alleviate it. Maybe we alleviate it even through a diagnosis. But our text here today gives us an incredible insight into our suffering. James is offering us something in verse 5. He's offering something to us, and it's the perspective of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And I think that James here is talking specifically about asking for wisdom in the midst of suffering. Don't disconnect verses 2 through 4 from 5 to 8. Asking for wisdom in the midst of suffering. Here's the question. God, what are you doing? How do I, as he says at the end, count it all joy? These these terrible events will come upon us. Oftentimes, what makes suffering so difficult is not having the perspective. It it almost always inevitably leaves us saying, God, what are you doing? What did Horatio Spafford feel when he came across the Atlantic and and the sailors said, this is where your daughters died? God, why? Why? In the midst of suffering, we ask God for his wisdom. The trial that you're facing today, it might be crushing you because we're embracing the wisdom of the world. What do I mean by that? The wisdom of the world doesn't understand and does not have a category for suffering with a redemptive purpose. It can just all seem purely meaningless to us. But the Bible gives us something a lot different. Biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom, this is going to be a somewhat (laughs) demeaning definition, so I say it to myself first, okay? Biblical wisdom is to know that you're a fool. (laughs) Is to know you don't have the answers. Biblical wisdom is to know that you don't have all the answers. In the Proverbs, it's the fool that thinks he's wise, and it's the wise that thinks he's the fool. In the Proverbs, it's the fool that thinks he's wise, 
He thinks he has all the answers. He's the one who comes to the suffering and thinks that he has the answers. I wish we could talk about this text for the next several weeks and we could go through the book of James together. But if you were to flip forward to James 3.13, you would see this. That wisdom produces a meekness. Wisdom does not produce pride. It's the fool who is right in his own eyes, who understands. But it is the wise man, it is the wise woman, who looks to God instead. If you think you know how things should be, and then suffering comes, you will be crushed. But, if you have a meekness that has been cultivated and produced in your life, when suffering comes, you'll look at it with a sense of humility, and you will see that your theory of life is potentially off. I've met, um, I went to uh, Multnomah Bible College down in Portland, and I've had several friends uh, that are now former friends that have walked away from the faith. And the number one reason that these brothers have walked away from the faith, these friends have walked away from God, is because they came into a season of suffering and came to the conclusion, therefore there cannot be a God. If there is a God, this would not happen to me. But that can't be true in light of the cross. Because the worst thing that has happened in human history is that the Son of God was crucified. The Son of God suffered, endured immeasurable trial. And the result of it, though, was the greatest possible good that we could ever possibly imagine. The salvation of our souls. So if it's true in the ultimate most of senses, that Jesus' suffering, his death, his burial, resulted in his resurrection, and ultimately our resurrection, the worst of all possible things resulted in the best of all possible things, then we can face trial. Because trial is doing something. So how do we proceed from here.
how do we continue to gain this redemptive view of suffering, a, a view of suffering that flies in the face of the world's wisdom, that says everything is just meaningless? There's no trial, no calamity, no small pressure even, no overwhelming sorrow, small root of life that's outside the plan of God. And it's for this reason that we must see it all as joy. Look again at verse 4 as we look for resources here. That we would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word uh, complete if you have a King James Bible, which most of you probably don't, and I don't either, but I've looked it up here, is the word entire. The Greek word is teleon. It's a fullness. It's a completeness. It's a wholeness. This is the way that one commentary put it. It's a whole, undamaged, and intact. That in the end, our trial will actually make us whole, undamaged, and intact. And that is completely the upside-down way that the world thinks about trials. And it's the upside-down the, the way that, 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 that we think about them, too. Who wants to go into a trial? Who wants to suffer? I don't. But it says, count it all joy. How does the Bible have the audacity to say what it says in verse 2? Count it all joy. Because the way to become complete, the way to become whole, the way to become intact, the way to be entire is actually through the trial. That's a remarkable statement. The way out of a trial is through it. Not to remove yourself from it. The way out of a trial is through it. Not to remove yourself from it. The irony here is that throughout the Bible, those who wish to save their life will lose it. Those, those who wish to be intact, whole, entire, by Avoiding injury will never truly be intact. Those who wish to be whole by avoiding suffering will never really be whole. The person that lacks wholeness, intactness, intactness undamagedness, because they avoided the fire of the trial, must not assume they will receive anything from the Lord. That's the big connection I'm seeing from verses 2 to 4 and 5 to 8. To not see counting trial as joy and then to ask for wisdom and to receive something from the Lord are incompatible. Lord, mature me. Lord, change me. Lord, make me whole is a dangerous prayer, my friends. It is a dangerous prayer. 
the person who desires to grow to be whole and does not avail themselves of the crucibles of life should not suppose they will receive anything from the Lord. But, here comes the good news. Verse 1-5, James tells us about the character of God. God is a God who gives to all generously who ask. And he gives it without reproach. The, the, the nature of God here might be a little bit clouded in the English, but in the Greek it's quite beautiful. It says that God is a giving God. He's the one who in his nature is a giver. He loves to do it. He delights to do it. His grace is wrapped around this kind of giving. He gives to all without reproach. That means it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how many times you've spurned him, how many times you've fled the trial. I've fled trials. It doesn't matter how many times you have fled the trials. It doesn't even matter the friends I was talking about from school that abandoned Christianity because of the trial. His arms are open wide by his nature. He's a giver. He gives to all without reproach. There is more giving in him than there is taking in you. His grace and his giving to you will always exceed your spurning of him. Always. He will give you far more than you will trample on. Suffering has a redemptive quality to it. The suffering that makes us into something. The suffering that makes us into something. Now, I can't presume to be a man who's suffered a lot. I know there's a lot of folks in this room who have suffered way more than I have. But I can tell you a few things. The first thing I want to say is I don't assume that I know everything that's going on in anyone's life. And second, I do know that if you're a Christian, God is working everything together for your good. That there's a, a, a weight of glory being compounded beyond all comparison. Do you remember that place in Hebrews 10? I think, where it's, uh, the writer says that they joyfully, uh, they were joyfully at the plundering, plundering of their property. I mean, how do you get there? How, do you, how are you joyful when someone comes and takes your stuff? They must have experienced something. They must have experienced some kind of transformation. So here's the small things I know. Uh, 25 years ago, my father-in-law broke his back. He fell off a ladder. He was a contractor. He fell off a ladder, and he broke his back, and he had to be airlifted. 
to the hospital. And he was in the hospital for several weeks. Radically changed his life, radically changed my wife's life and her sister's life and my mother-in-law's life. In that moment, he could have tubed the faith. God's doing a million things in his life in that moment, right? I don't presume to know them all, but I will tell you this. He loves Jesus today more than he did then. I've seen it. I've seen him the whole time. Second thing I've seen, my brother and his wife suffered an awful miscarriage a couple years ago. Horrendous suffering. Awful suffering. But they love Jesus more today than they did then. And I'll say that Vanessa and I have lost babies through miscarriage as well. And I can see in Vanessa a way that she loves Jesus more today that I hadn't seen before. The trial, the suffering is doing something. I don't know and presume to know all that it's doing. But I do know this, that the transformation, the wisdom, the growth is not happening in spite of it, but because of it. It's not happening in spite of it, it's happening because of it. There is no alteration or adjustment to the plan of God. There will never be a plan B. You are always on plan A. The trials are doing something. In verse 4, let it have its effect. They're not meaningless. The reason that I wanted us to read all the way to verse 12 is because it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed. Happy. Whole. Intact. Complete. And as I draw us to a close, I always like to remind myself and to remind us that the Bible speaks to our weakness. You know what I mean by that? Count it all joy is a command. Because of course our natural reaction is to not count it all joy. Count it all joy is a command. I know it's not easy. I don't love pain. But suffering will do something. Because if it did something in Jesus, it will do something in you. I brought something with me this morning. There's a letter I received from a woman in the church that I keep in my study. 
is a woman who experienced horrific suffering. She wrote me this. I'm not sure if you remember when we were in your office that first time and I told you of our family history. And at the end I said something like, with all the accusations and rejection, I would not wish the pain on anyone yet. I still would not trade the experience away because Jesus has become my everything. He has ministered to me in such a sweet and intimate and deeper way, and I know him deeper and differently than I would have without the trial. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Pray with me. So, Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask, God, that we would have the endurance as we face trial and suffering. And we ask, God, that through everything that we've experienced, through tragic suffering, even from unkindful comments that have been made to us, that Jesus would become more dear to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.